Welcome everyone to the Real Asian Podcast. I'm here today with Renee. How you doing, Renee? This is our second uh, one-on-one date with each other. Is that hey, fair to say? It's been wonderful. I really enjoy it. All I need is a cocktail. Yeah. However, in this case, it's going to be donuts and coffee. That's right. Actually, I do have my coffee right here with me. I already had my coffee. If, if I have another cup of coffee, I may be like spazzing out on the <laughs> <laughs> Yes. Uh, Ray's going to sprout wings, become a hummingbird. <laughs> yeah, for real. So today we are talking about the documentary uh, directed by Alice Gu called The Donut King. It's a documentary that tells the story of Ted Noy, who's a Cambodian refugee who opened up his first donut shop back in the 1970s and really built a donut shop empire where at one point, I believe, 80% of donut shops were owned by Cambodian families all somewhat related in some way or form by their extended family. So I think the real important question that I first want to ask you, Renee, is what is your favorite donut? Ooh, that's a great question. Right. Um, I'm going to have to go with apple fritter. I, while I do love your traditional glazed, I love apples. And, you know, I know that they probably just use regular Red Deliciouses that they get from the bundle. But uh, something about that nice, subtle cinnamon, the little bit of uh, the nice kind of mm. uh, glaze texture when you crunch into something that has both not only like the bread itself, but also a little bit of the fruit. It's just like this wonderful harmony. It's like food porn, basically. So I, yeah. Uh, apple fritter for me this whole documentary is food porn there's literally donuts everywhere and when i was watching it i was like oh man and i was watching it at like uh, 10 o'clock at night i was like do i want to get a donut right now (laughs) (laughs) they would be open i know yeah donuts the only thing that's open 24 hours (laughs) it's 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 amazing and so we mentioned that you know, Ted Noy, who is a Cambodian refugee, came around during the kind of like the backdrop of when the Khmer Rouge were attempting to overthrow the Cambodian government. So this is at a time where the uh, Cambodia was going through a civil war. I think it broke out somewhat in 1970s, but obviously kind of went down through the years. Ted was fortunate enough to get one of the last flights back to America. So he took him and his family, settled in Southern California. Ted tells the story of his first encounter with the donut, where he was pumping gas at a local gas station, and I guess he smelled this sweet aroma from a local donut shop. And he walks over and he's like, what is this? Like, what's this donut? And so he eats it. And as soon as he takes that first bite, it takes him back to his childhood. And it's just like this perfect mix, kind of like what you just explained, this perfect mixture of sweetness. I wish I could remember the very first time I had a donut. I don't. But I can definitely recall a few times where like a a donut is just like, um, it reminds me of just like simpler times when I was young. Because definitely when uh, when I was younger, yeah, one of the first things I think my parents exposed me to was donuts in our local area. So then, Ray, what's your favorite donut? My favorite donut, I'm a classic glazed donut kind of guy. If there's a, a dozen, you know how most people when they order stuff at the office and there's an assortment, I go for the glaze first. After that, I'll go for the chocolate. I'm not so excited about the sprinkled donut. I'm be real. I'm sorry. <laughs> but a glaze. Chef, He's doing the chef kiss circle, guys. He's doing the chef kiss. Yeah. <laughs> Are you the type to dip your donuts in coffee? Oh, no. Mm-mm. God, no. <laughs> 
Why would I do that? <laughs> One, why would I do that to good coffee? And two, why would I do that to a good donut? <laughs> but what about the old-fashioned donut? Oh, or are you talking about all donuts? I'm okay. I will say I hate old fashioned. Oh, There's something about it. It's kind of like crumbly, falls apart. Like I, I kind of and really dense. And uh, you know, that's one of the things. Is like the so it's um the traditional Cambodian donut is called like the Nom Kong, mm. right? And it has that. I think they showed it right. They do actually, and inside is like um the way that it expands is similar to your non-classic kind of. But so it's crunchy on the outside, kind of air filled on the inside. And I think that's why it mm. has like this really good, like when you're deep frying it and there's like an audio aspect of it too. Like the crunch is like perfect. I think that's one thing about it is like, it is an art form. It's not easy to go ahead and just replicate the same thing over and over and over again. Right. There's this manifestation that it calls to mind. And um, it is because of, you know, eating something, smelling something. It can take you, transport you back, right? To a certain point in time, for sure. Exactly. And the the smell is undeniable. All these different things, right? Oh, the smell. <laughs> yep. Fresh donuts in the morning. Oh, man. Yeah, you know? So talking about Uncle Ted... He asked the local donut shop, kind of like, hey, you know, what does it take to open up your own donut shop? Uh, the donut shop owner at the time was saying, hey, you know, if you save up around $3,000, you can kind of do so. But hey, don't even do that. Just go across the street and go to Winchell's because they have this donut management training program of how to bake, but also how to run a donut shop. The Winchell's at the time was kind of like the main donut chain in California. Ted goes on over to this training program. He actually still has a relationship with the original manager who trained him. So he learned the ropes and became very efficient and proficient at running his own donut shop to the point where he started to manage his own. And then so just I think he was intuitively a good businessman because he had good customer service and he knew how to, you know, run a donut shop. But I also want to make sure uh, I want to add that you know, his family was doing most of the work and they were slaving over many, many hours. Mm. So they were very good at saving money because they didn't have to actually pay any employees per se. It was all a family run business, which is very common among immigrant families, right? Hey, capitalism only works because there's a lower class that gets taken advantage of, right? Cheap labor. <laughs> there you go. That's the key. That's the key to success. Cheap child labor. Yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah, they, all, they had three there kids all working at the donut shop. So eventually, they saved enough to open up another donut shop, put it under his wife's name. Um, Suga, Sugantini, I think, is the way her Cambodian name, but I don't want to butcher it, so I apologize. But she uh, eventually adopted an American name called Christie's. Now, interesting fact, there's a Christie's down the street from where my mom lives. I used to go there every morning to go grab donuts and uh, a breakfast sandwich. Fittingly enough, there was always a family running the shop behind the counter, and they were busy. They were always busy, lying out the door, people wanting to grab their donuts. Yeah, I, I never put the two to two together that, that there were so many Asian-owned donut shops. Not until really watching this documentary. I see. It's interesting because for me, I grew up in the Central Valley, actually, so close to SoCal, mm -hmm. right? You know, I didn't know about Uncle Ted per se, but I there was like this unspoken thing that basically that we all kind of knew was that most of the donut shops, especially when they were independently owned, 
were were owned by you know Kamai, and mm-hmm. you go in if you see an Asian face, ninety nine percent of the time they are either Kamai or Chinese Kamai, right? For me, when I moved out from the Central Valley, going to get donuts when I lived in the Bay Area, it actually felt like I could still be able to be a part of my community mm-hmm. because even when I was in like you know San Francisco. <laughs> uh, there were some Kamai-owned uh, restaurant um, donut shops there, and so you know, I think everyone has some sort of kind of relationship with Kamai-owned re- donut shops, even if they don't really recognize it. Um, I would always ask. There is this one place that I used to work at, Konami, and um, you know they make Dance Dance Revolution, <laughs> Silent Hill, Metal Gear Solid. And, Love that game. Yeah, and when you know I'd be working until like midnight. The donut shops were the only ones that were open 24 hours. And so I'd go over and I remember the first time stepping in and I was like, oh, are you Kamai? And they're like, yeah. And no one normally asks them what type of Asian they are, right? Most people don't. And I didn't. Yeah. Right, exactly. <laughs> but I always, I you know, I already, whenever I had asked, I always already knew the answer in a sense. And I, I feel terrible saying that stereotyping. But like, it's not a stereotype, right? It, it is, mm-hmm. it's just fact. Sometimes you just know. It's like how I am with Vietnamese people. Sometimes you kind of just have a, a vibe. You're like, you're Vietnamese, aren't you? And then like most people don't get that or assume that I'm Vietnamese because I, I don't know. This is said to me. I don't think of this because most people don't think I look, look Vietnamese right off the bat. But most people who do guess my ethnicity pretty spot on are other Vietnamese people. Right. On the other hand, other people are kind of, I've gotten Filipino probably <laughs> 90% of the time. Same. Not offended by it, but I'm like. I'm not Filipino, but I appreciate it. Uh, and then I've gotten Mexican at one point. Same. That was interesting. <laughs> it's, I was like, okay. It's part of my dark skin. I'm a little bit darker. Yeah. <laughs> but I was like, no, I'm, I'm Chinese and Vietnamese. But yeah, most of the time, other Vietnamese people can assume what my true ethnicity is. Um, and, and like you said, it, it's just a certain mannerism and vibe that you kind of get when you meet your own people. Yeah. Maybe something instinctual about it. Who knows? And hopefully all other Asian people can resonate with us when we say that as well. And then sometimes it is true when they say all Asians look alike. It's not true. It's not always true, but sometimes it is. (laughs) We don't look alike, but we feel alike. There you go. (laughs) (laughs) So, So at this point, the documentary does a good job of showing us these points in history to remind us what's happening in the world at the time. There's... A part where it tells us about when the Khmer Rouge took over Phnom Penh and began basically genocide of innocent people. Really horrifying what happened there at that time. Uh, Then it goes into how Vietnamese troops were able to liberate the people, which then eventually leads to another wave of Cambodian immigrants to America. What was striking to me at this documentary was the difference in language by President Ford and President Carter at the time. And I couldn't help but think and compare to the more recent language used by, you know, President 45. And it was just crazy to see that archive footage. I, you know, um, I, I really love uh, these types of documentaries where not only are they talking about the people and the situations that's going on, what's the geopolitical climate at that moment, right? Yeah. Um, you know, back in 2016, the geopolitical climate in the U.S. was build that wall. Right. Versus what was being chanted back in the 1975, 1980s. 
you know, we we are all immigrants ourselves, except the indigenous na- natives, right? Um, yeah, I know. <laughs> um, we won't go into that one. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, I think that's something that is really important to note is that, you know, we did have compassionate presidents um, who understood they're the only reason why we're here today. And that's part of it is that why Uncle Ted is here is because he was working with and for the U.S. government. Not to say necessarily that you have to work for the U.S. government to qualify, quote, unquote, um, qualify to be able to come over here. Like, that's just not, you know, like, uh, it's a humanitarian right, especially when you are a political asylum seeker, you know, who basically has to be here because your government is going to kill you if you stay. Right. They have no choice. Right. It's either life or death. Right. I mean, literally, that is the choice that they had. Yes, exactly. And what's interesting is when you when you bring that up is the stark contrast of the sentiment by Governor Jerry Brown mm-hmm. in California during that time where you see him make a statement that kind of makes it seem he's very slow walking to accept immigrants. When they were trying to set up Camp Pendleton down in Southern California, there's that clip of Jerry Brown saying, you know, hey, like, we should probably look out for Californians first, right? There's that dialect that he has that's us versus them. Right. Like, we have to look out for us first before we can care about them. For those who lived in California, you kind of see two different Jerry Browns, right? You see the 1970s yeah. Jerry Brown, and then you see, you know, the 2012 Jerry Brown, right? Yeah. He has been able to be progressive, and it's just part of, probably it was like this pressure to be the person of that time. Right. Um, I think it was really short sighted to say, well, you know, we have a million people out of jobs and it's like, okay, then, you know, that that's a totally different situation to kind of have to look into um, and do like it's not an easy job to be to be a governor, obviously, but also at the same time, you know, like I think there's this animosity toward the idea that immigrants somehow are taking your jobs. And it's just not just not true. It's not true, but it's a realized fear that a lot of Americans have. Right. And it's easy. It's easy. It's a, again, it, yeah, it's an easy feeling to have because you just assume like, oh, they're, they're not from this country. They're coming over to take over my family's job. Right. right. And then obviously, if you're ignorant and you are unfortunate to lose your family business or you're applying for a job and an immigrant who works for cheaper per se and that's not that's not the immigrant's fault that's just the business owner or the business who's electing to use cheap labor they don't get the job that they're applying for then they have to focus that hate or that animosity towards another group of people and that's unfortunate and that kind of you see that repeated over time in history right and and so um you know the the reason why it's easy to just point at at someone else is because they're the other they're the perceived other mm-hmm. that that you can go ahead and talk down to. And so part of it is that one of the things that I think a lot of people don't really realize is that you're you're talking about people who are educators, people who are doctors in in their original country who have to come here and then now are janitors. Yeah. You know, um right you or start all over. Right, they have yeah. to start all over again. So like imagine, you know, working yourself up to being able to support your family doing you know this work whatever it is that you where you came from to have to come back start all over from the very bottom and that basically now we're here right it's not even it's not even the bottom right it's like a totally different structure so the resilience that a person has to have to be able to do that and that being able to be humble enough to be able to take on those opportunities 
you see basically that Christy um, and her family, they were well-educated. They were, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. they were going to a private school. And this is the golden age uh, for Cambodia, right? You have wonderful music and and up-and-coming um, just like philosophy and businesses are booming. And, and she lives in her own villa, right? <laughs> like yeah. she has this, you know, she has guards and servants and stuff like that. And so, yeah, she's actually upper crust to then have to be relegated to basically have to live in a refugee camp yeah you know i think that's those are some really humbling kind of situations to have to go through so after the second migration or you know another wave of migration from cambodia to america uh, the u.s embassy calls up ted and at this point Ted's pretty well established and connected they ask him like hey are you willing to sponsor more cambodian families and he's like yeah of course you know he's very tied to his culture and his family and his people so he sponsors over 100 cambodian families to settle in california or i guess near near them and he creates this leasing program and this is kind of like the business acumen that he kind of displays where he would take a certain percentage help them start up their own donut shop take a certain percentage of their profits and then they can kind of keep the rest and he does this over and over again and eventually expands all throughout Southern California, probably also in Northern California as well, which eventually drives out the competition because there's one, cheap labor, <laughs> and two, just the uh, the consistent and persistent work ethic of the Cambodian people. Right. When you're taking into account that he probably owned, you know, hundreds of businesses, yep. right? And he's taking, let's just say it's it's a moderate amount. It's 20%, 30%, right? He's taking basically the the uh, <laughs> the Apple uh, app percentage, thirty percent. Yeah. Um, but you, when or you or the Apple fritter sales. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, when you take into account that he's basically raking in anywhere, basically a hundred thousand every month. Oh yeah. Right. Yep. And so to at the very minimum, right? And you know, he talks about that. He talks about basically how he was kind of bored after a while because he now had a hundred thousand dollars every month where he just had nothing else to do but, but have time he's ranking in the dough right. for sure traveling now yeah. he's you know traveling yeah having parties at the house they they mentioned a part where he was just having a whole bunch of family gatherings even hosted a i think a Cambodian dance troupe or something like troupe that of like over 50 people um uh, yeah, I would say that that's actually something that's very common feeling for me personally. For an example, I know we had family coming in and out of our house all the time where we would maybe not necessarily sponsoring, but definitely housing some family members while they kind of get themselves on their feet. The And then kind of towards the end of the documentary, or basically the downfall, I guess you could argue maybe it's the climax of the documentary of the story. He stumbles upon Las, Las Vegas. <laughs> the glitz and the glamour. <laughs> the glitz and the glamour, the luxury lifestyle of Las Vegas. And he he admits that like any compulsive gambler, it starts with just $10, $20 at the table. And then I think he, at that point, he's exposed to the rush of gambling. And then it kind of goes into like the thousands. He's spelling min- millions. He's mm. what is classified as a high roller. High rollers have specific rooms. They have their own concierge. And they have their own, uh, basically, you can say, like, villas. And so, and I have known people. <laughs> I have been in those situations to be around those people. And uh, basically, you know, as a high roller, when you go into these casinos and they are catering to you, yeah, there is an expected amount of millions that you have to spend every time. 
they're also taking giving you you know uh either free stuff like such as like meals free rooms free yeah buffets, exactly yeah. exactly but they're also expecting you to spend money there too so you know it's very common to see people dropping six figures on a meal and i've seen those receipts <laughs> right that's a lot of bottles of champagne <laughs> <laughs> um you know um and and it's just like, it's just that rush, right? People are catering to you. They you feel he um, feels king of the world. Exactly. He's got this donut empire. Exactly. I mean, he feels invincible. Yes, right? He exactly. feels invincible. And that's something that's really important to understand that there's this level of living, right? This quality of life now that you've come to recognize for yourself. I think one of the things that I kept into mind, or I would assume, is in this reality of Las Vegas, this different reality that he's living, he has the means to live this lifestyle, right? He's seduced by the pit bosses offering free rooms, free free uh, meals and gambling at the tables, high stakes, high roller stakes. And then he kind of has to go back to California and still run a business. I think at some point, if I had to guess, he would be like, well, I mean, I can I can double my profits just within a matter of an hour or so. You know, I don't think he realizes, obviously, now he realizes back in hindsight, there's a sustainable model to running this donut shop. But at the gambling table, it's the rush of instant gratification. So I want to talk about the very first line in the documentary that that really resonated with me. It opens up with saying, if you are a son or daughter of an immigrant family who runs a small business, you can identify with spending a lot of time in the shop. So for me, and I believe I mentioned this in one of our other episodes, that my family used to own a Chinese restaurant in Milpitas. It was called Fengjian Palace. And my mom and my aunt were managers of, I may getting the job rolled wrong, but I believe my mom and my aunt were managers of the restaurant. And then I had another aunt who was um, like a sous chef or a chef in the kitchen. And then my uncle was like the head chef. And then a bunch of like other extended family members. I believe my other uncle ran the books. It's kind of like in the the money guy. He owns like a kitchenware shop currently, which is still in business and doing good. But he was helping investing uh, the Chinese restaurant as well. And growing up, we spent so much time in that restaurant. That was like the place where we would celebrate all birthdays, celebrations, Chinese New Year's, of course. Whenever we wanted to just have a meal. It was also a dim sum restaurant, so I had like free dim sum whenever I wanted. Ugh, boy, do I wish that was still the case. All right, what's your favorite dim sum dish? So my favorite dim sum is shumai, oh, and I, I used to when I was a kid. I used to not like eating the the skin. I don't know why. I think it was just a texture kind of thing. I didn't like it, mm-hmm. so I would just mm-hmm. eat the meat part of it. And my cousin, uh, Alan, actually, Alan would eat the skin. He actually liked the skin. <gasps> oh, so my gosh. They would, the way that they would do it is I would take off the skin and then give it to Alan and he would eat that. Okay, I'm just imagining baby Alan and baby Ray just like, you know, d- having this factory of Ray taking off the skin, handing it to Alan, yeah. Alan putting it into his mouth. <laughs> it's just seeing that visually. That's... And I would, I would drench that thing in soy sauce for sure. There you go. Um, but yeah, we would have, you know, we'd eat there all the time. A lot of times, personally for me, because my mom was working long hours at the restaurant, my house, my childhood home and my elementary school was nearby, maybe like within three miles for sure. So anytime my mom had to pick me up from school, she would take me back to the restaurant and I would just basically hang out there until the end of her shift or whenever my dad can come pick me up from after his work. 
I remember eating this whole plate of chow fun by myself. Oh, I know. Yum. That was just my childhood. And even when I was young, and this is very typical of like a, a first generation son of immigrants, is that I got to a point where I was like, I don't want to eat Chinese food anymore. I'm sick of Chinese oh, food. I want no. American food. I want McDonald's, all these things, <laughs> right? Now looking back on it, I want that Chinese restaurant back. Mm. You know, I really wish that we still had it. So eventually it ran out of business. I, to this day, I don't know the exact cause of us going out of business. I know that my mom used to say it was because of the location of the restaurant. So the way it was, it was mm. in this plaza. And it was like at the very back of this plaza. The plaza was kind of like set up like a V in terms of the stores. And it just didn't get a lot of exposure. I think it, even when you were to drive by the plaza, you couldn't see the restaurant right away unless mm. there was signage, big signage in front of it. But also you had to put it at the sidewalk level to make sure people saw it. Was it in any plaza that would be recognizable, like off of Warm Springs, off of... No, no. it was on okay. Abel Street. I don't know if you're familiar with Milpitas. Calaveras and Abel is kind of like the main intersection of where it was. And of course, it was a time when Milpitas was technically a small town. This is maybe before Cisco I see. took over the city in terms of where all its workers are. So it didn't have the amount of population that it did. Mm. But it was still meant a lot for my family. All of our gatherings were always there. It eventually turned into, uh, we tried re renovating it, changing the name to like Blue Ginger, which is a little bit more of a fusion Vietnamese restaurant. And it just didn't work out. I worked there for like a day as a busboy, and that's when I found out I do not like working. You're like, damn, this is hard. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, nope, restaurant business ain't for me. <laughs> but I definitely can identify with what the documentary says right in the beginning. And just the whole feeling of having a family business where you're spending so much time and that becomes the central environment for the entire family. And I remember we would be open for Christmas, you know, for major holidays because they knew that that was business time. That was a day to make money. And so it was something that I think a lot of stories tend to come out of immigrant families. One of my uncles still owns a restaurant business, but then it's like all the way into Watsonville. Mm, mm -hmm. But the restaurant industry is not something that is central within our family. We kind of went off and did our own thing. Well, it's really interesting because one of the things about Uncle Ted's success is that he actually continued to use the Christie name, mm -hmm. right? They have their own particular recipe, and right, he he talks about like the nuance of a good donut and how basically you know each one basically does the same thing, but there's one or two different things that just makes it different, and so. You know, I think the reason why he rose to success was because he didn't have any ego in it. He basically just wanted to be able to, you know, take over a chain, uh, do very little, very minimal operation costs, right? Basically sail on the fact that you already have this loyal user base to your business. And so, you know, I think that's one of the, the crowning reasons why is like when he took over, it wasn't because he wanted, he saw like an the thing that needed to be renovated. No, he saw that there were uh, loyal people to this, you know, beautiful confection that tasted delicious, and he just wanted to continue maintaining that. And we'll talk about that in terms of this new age of donut donutisms. I'm gonna make up that word. So, at the end of the documentary. We see the demise of Ted's donut empire, so much so that he kind of retreats back to Cambodia. 
and he has this somewhat second wind. This is post documentary, yes, so it's exactly. not shown in the documentary. But talk about his second empire that he's like working to build. One thing that I think is really interesting is that、um, Alice, as a director, she does a really good job of kind of painting this. Story and the main reason she was really interested in was like, what's the story behind all these Cambodian-owned restaurants, right? She found out about it because her nanny was like, "You should have a Cambodian donut," and she's like, "What's a Cambodian donut?" And she gives it to her, and then Alice is like, "This is an American donut." And her nanny's like, "No, it's a Cambodian donut." She's like, "Just because a Cambodian person makes it doesn't mean it's a Cambodian donut." And then she like Google searched, and that's how she stumbled upon Ted Noy. Right, exactly. And so she definitely paints Ted, Uncle Ted as this redemption story, right? Right. At one point, they say, "Easy come, easy go." Like we can we can love him, we can hate him, but we have to appreciate what he's done for us. So even though he kind of screwed us all over. But at the same time, he gave us an opportunity, and then in addition to that, he then set us free with his gambling debt by giving <laughs> us these places that we can call our own. True,、right? true. The last bit of money is basically running out. They went to go and sell one of their last donut businesses in Bakersfield, which there is there is nothing, nothing in Bakersfield. Right? <laughs> Sometimes we,、uh, you know, in Central Valley, make fun of Bakersfield being called the oven because that's basically it. It's just hot and dry and nothing out there.、Um, you know, for sell it for the last eighty five thousand, and you know, and so their son who's driving, you know, gets pulled over by the cops. They get the car impounded, and when they finally get it back. That eighty-five thousand that they had, well, it was in just—it's gone. It's gone. It was in an unmarked brown paper bag in the trunk. Straight cash. Because they didn't declare it, right? Yeah. Gone. And they're like, nope, there was no cash. So, do you think the police took it? Hell yeah, of course. <laughs> My God, if if I know nothing else, I know that they take money. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they take money. They take drugs. Whatever. You don't. You don't、yeah. claim it. Never existed. Yeah. So now they're really flat broke, right? The story on the documentary is a little bit different because it says that they're broke, but in retelling in some of like the articles that I've read, they actually had about two million in the bank,、mm. and so that's when Ted and Christie decide to go back to Cambodia, tries to create a brand new political party、um, because now this is the this is the newly kind of、um, uh, it's the newly liberated Cambodia. And where you can be able to come up with your own different、uh, political、mm-hmm. parties, and he comes up with the conservative one. They win zero seats. Oh man! <laughs> <laughs> But one thing he did get tapped to was to actually be a counselor for the prime minister. This is not what he wants. He actually wants to be in the public eye because、yeah. what he desires is actually to be known as Uncle Ted, right? Because he wants people to come to him and ask for his opinions because he's he's he is for all intents and purposes a successful business person, right? For sure. He then starts to kind of pivot from political to more real estate. He did try. He really lost it all actually when. He tried to invest in hybridization of a、uh, rice, which failed ultimately. And at one point, you know, Christie leaves Cambodia to go back to the U.S. And while in the documentary, Ted says, "I did not,、uh, you know, cheat on my wife." Okay, I cheated on her a little. Well, the person <laughs>、yeah. he cheated on with ended up becoming pregnant, right? And she, and he actually has two children with this person at this,、uh, you know, not at this point, but basically he. he 
The reason why is because it's not, and they don't say in the documentary, but he did, not only did he cheat, he got this person pregnant. Chrissy said, that's it. I'm done. I can deal with everything else. I can deal with the abuse, the verbal abuse. I can deal with the emotional abuse. But when you break your promise, you're blood packed with me. You don't love me anymore, right? Yeah. Um, his big break actually comes when a one of his Chinese friends actually comes to him and say, hey, I know you have it in with the government. Can you help me? We're looking to expand our, you know, our factories and whatever in Cambodia, you know, from China. And I think you'd be able to help me with that. And so uh, Ted takes a commission off of that. And it ends up becoming something that is lucrative. And I actually did a little bit of research. He does get another significant other. She is 19 to his Ugh. 70 whatever. <laughs> so that's, that's a little bit. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's like a pretty big gap. It's funny because the person that interviews them um, said, you know, she's she's beaming and that you can tell that they love each other as she you know, jumps into her Lexus SUV in oh, Cambodia to drive over to one of their one of the other uh, properties that they own. Right. One of the one of the five. Yeah. Hey, I mean, that's his lifestyle. No judgment here. <laughs> he has a natural business acumen that he's able to exercise. So no faults on that end. So I want to share with you my biggest takeaway from this documentary. While it does mostly tell a rags to riches story, uh, or in this case, a rags to riches to rags to riches (laughs) again story based on what you just told me, I also pull from it as a cautionary tale. And this tale reminds us that it is easy to become the victims of our own success. So first off, using what happened with Winchell's Donuts. When Ted began learning about the donut business, the Winchell's program or the management program that they had, which I assume was meant to cultivate homegrown talent within their business so that those who graduate from it can easily plug into their, to a new store or whatever store and help them run a successful business to expand. And with Ted's natural work ethic, it was a perfect match. However, at the time, I don't, you know, obviously they didn't realize that they were also creating their own doom. Because you can say that the Winchell's program was so successful that it, it got Ted to open up his own donut business. And he took what he learned from them and eventually dominated the market so much and drove them out of California. Now, alongside of that, I think a part of Ted's success must require some level of greed, right? You could argue that it's his you know, like somewhat worshiping of the almighty dollar is what helps build the donut empire. I mean, at first it was out of necessity to provide for his family, right? Um, but like, you know, once you're ranking in hundreds and thousands of dollars every month, I think your family is clearly good. Um, and so it's his hustle and stubbornness to become successful is what got him his fortunes until he goes to Vegas. So then those very traits of his become a curse almost. Again, that pursuit of money is what ultimately leads him to lose all his money, you know, because he's chasing all his losses at the tables. And lastly, America. We see the clips of President Ford and President Carter talk about how America was built by immigrants, so it would be right for us to accept immigrants coming from Southeast Asia or these war-torn countries, right? And at the time, it wasn't so much a party issue, but a human issue. There you go. Uh, and still is. And however, I know that 
Many of the huge corporations like Winchell's see this migration of immigrants as an opportunity to hire unskilled workers for cheap. And so you have this moment where corporate America and progressives and basically just the society at large in America are somewhat on the same page when it comes to immigration, only really because they gain some kind of benefit for themselves. But now we see the dialogue towards immigrants change. It goes from, yeah, come on over, make a life for yourself, have opportunity, to, whoa, wait a minute now. Like, we wanted you to have a job, but don't take my job. To me, it doesn't make any sense because it's like, it was the American government itself at the time. It was previous administrations that opened up our arms to immigrants that kind of set the precedent of welcoming immigrants. And many of which did exactly what those administrations said, have opportunity, make your way. So that's not the immigrants' fault. But nowadays, the dialogue and the language towards immigrants has vastly changed. I think you bring up some really um, interesting observations. Um, Putting on my historian hat, always finding someone else to place the blame has always been uh, America's MO. Right. Mm -hmm. Basically, we say immigrant, but really it's just like it's a parenthetical kind of statement put in any ethnic group. Right. You can you can say like Chinese and you can say Indian because those were some of the first ethnic groups as part of the building fabric of of the United States because, you know, they were brought over by tradesmen um the 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 british the company if you will who right. actually traded punjabi and sikh men to come here in the us to uh, in a in a form of servitude you have the chinese who came here to actually help build not help the railroad. who help who build the the railroads right on the west coast and they're part of the fabric of the us and so you know fill in that blank of whoever it is it can be the irish it can be the russians it can be the chinese the indians it can be the mexicans who are our bordering neighbors and and really it's that animosity to uh, to the other when you're taking into account that people are afraid of the unknown versus being welcoming and accepting of it People don't want to have to be reminded of their own insignificance, which is crazy because we're all just one human race. And, um, you know, and the race is a construct, uh, really. And when you, when you take into the aspect of like the, the, the removing the, comp- the compassion filter, you know, I think that's something that is actually ultimately like, you know, the downfall of what makes us successful. So because we do need uh, immigrant ingenuity to kind of help continue putting pushing us forward. I think it's something that we oftentimes kind of see missing in our history textbooks or the contributions of of immigrants. So, Renee, uh, in part of the notes, you described it perfectly. You called it the aversion from Southeast Asians to identify with the Democratic Party today because of how they see it somewhat being branded or talked about as like a present day socialist or communist party. Uh, And that was one of the biggest parallels that definitely I found and through lines pulling from the backdrop of the 1970s 
Cambodia and politics, or just during that time to today. Right. One thing that I think that Alice Gu does a really great job of in the documentary is that she didn't tokenize uh, the Khmer Rouge. Right. I think one thing that you normally see are really brutalized uh, images of the atrocity. There are a couple of particular images that come to mind, such as you know, the stacking of human skulls. And what I've seen is one of my classmates in high school, you know, got a really good college education. And a part of that was because her parents worked their asses off in restaurants to be able to afford her an education, then started working in Washington, D.C. for a conservative legislator and saw an opportunity to kind of bring that back to the Central Valley and ran against Jim Costa and lost, <laughs> like spectacularly lost. But her whole campaign was centered around don't vote for the Democratic Party unless you want more communism, right? And she actually, in her ads, uh, used images of the Khmer Rouge to put that story home. So you see this, sadly, being telegraphed to immigrants of countries that did have a dictatorial kind of leadership take on that effect and you know for maybe you can talk more about the vietnamese people in particular um i would love to kind of hear your take on it but you know there were some studies done about why like for an example the latin latinx kind of community why so many voted for, for trump mm -hmm. as an example and a lot of it when they when they pulled it, it was because they said we came from um, you know, Puerto Rico, we came from Cuba, where they're, you know, not Puerto Rico, but like Cuba, where it was like, you know, a communist rule, and, and they don't want to see that again, right? And so there isn't just like that, there isn't the Asian vote, if you will, that's just going to be like, you know, down ballot democratic, it is splintered, and it is and shattered. And a little bit of it is because of the way that it's being marketed to, right? So, um, yeah, I mean, just speaking in general terms, it's definitely the stain of communism that is so deeply rooted and traumatic. When to me, learning more about the history, I don't want to say I empathize with it because obviously I didn't experience that same landscape and environment. So I can't really speak to the, the trauma that many Vietnamese uh, refugees and immigrants experienced during that time. But I can definitely sympathize by learning more about all those events that they had to go through going through the, the trauma of communism or socialism. So definitely in today, um, today's American politics, you know, the, the rhetoric and the way that conservative news outlets kind of spin it, saying like, oh, the Democratic Party is their socialist now. So these are buzzwords that they know are doing very intentionally to tap into that fear. Yes. There was the, there's this clip when uh, Trump supporters were protesting the election and there's a huge South Vietnamese flag mm -hmm. kind of nearby the U-Haw truck. And, and when I saw that, I was like, oh, no. But basically, but... <laughs> you it, just it, face palmed it, for those who yeah, can't see. <laughs> def definitely. But it illustrates just what you said, the, the splintering of views, of political views, because of the different, the generational experiences that we have. You know, me, from myself, we're looking at it from a way where there's definitely disparities, wealth disparities that the conservative party has taken advantage of 
to keep marginalized communities down. So a potential solution, not the only, but a potential solution to that is to have equitable reparations and that the federal government can help undo some of the disparities that were structurally in place prior years. But conservatives look at it in a way to say, well, this is the seed that grows into communism. Mm -hmm. It's splintered. It's generational. There's so many nuances to it. There's so many factors that plays into it. But this documentary kind of helps highlight some of that because when you hear Ted's political views, right, how closely tied he was to the Republican Party at the time, the Republican Party was favored because there was economic prosperity to it. Opportunity was all over the place. There was such rapid economic growth during that time. But obviously, it created this kind of wealth gap at the same time that we're kind of trying to recognize. Right. And I kind of want to bring into full view of what our community actually is broken up into. All right. I, I like to talk about disaggregating uh, AAPI data. And specifically, when you pull apart what Asia means, and you pull apart just Southeast Asians in particular, what you're looking at is, you know, the Hmong people uh, live in, or, um, as far as their economic s- situation, 27.4% of them actually live in poverty. Mm-hmm. And when you take into consideration then Cambodians, 18.2%, Vietnamese, 13%, and in Laotians, 12.2%, where the national average is 11 uh, this is actually from a study uh, done by SeaRock. Uh, it's called The Overview of Southeast Asian Educational Challenges. And this was actually back in 2013. Or, you know, Now that we have the census completed this year in 2020, hoping to be able to get some of this data um, analyzed ag- again. And so that's just, that's the poverty rate, right? And so when you're talking about, I don't want to be taxed, like, you're not the demographic we're talking about, right? Yeah. Like, if you, if you're in the millions, that's where you can be able to talk about like your your uh, wealth disparity being like more highly taxed. And like, that's actually just not the case. Times are changing and we're trying to see that. I think for us and our generation is trying to build that bridge. I'm always going to be on the side of like trying to understand the conservative side of things versus like a more aggressive liberal side of th- on certain things. I can understand that those who come from a place where they are a very impoverished background, I can understand the impulses that they have when it comes to politics. Mm. I'm, the, I'm maybe I'm not as compassionate because part of it is like I don't see how you can have an anti-immigrant stance when you were an immigrant yourself, right? Why is it that you're like, okay, I got mine, then you close the door behind you, Good point. right? Like that doesn't make sense. I will almost never understand where that comes from. I know it comes from a place of, of fear, mm-hmm. but at the same time, it's like, why, why do you fear? Do you realize that peop- if you didn't have that advocacy for you and your livelihood, you would still be in a refugee camp right now or dead? I, th- I think it's a scarcity mindset. It's, you know, once mm-hmm. they, they reach that point, they feel that another group of people who may threaten our position in that hierarchical ladder, mm-hmm. you know, they feel like, oh, we don't want black and brown people coming up to where we are, you know, because we made it here. That's the mentality. I'm not saying that I share that mentality, but I, I, if I had to guess, that's kind of where that mindset kind of comes from. And that's where they pit us against each other with that model minority yes, uh, yes. myth. Right? Exactly. Exactly. 
So the last topic we'll discuss is this new era of donuts and donut businesses. And I think the documentary intentionally highlights this new era by featuring more on DK's Donuts and Meili Tao, who is like the donut princess. And DK's was one of the original donut shops that Ted helped open during his donut regime. (laughs) So we see now the mom and pop shops start to utilize social media and technology. And this is probably a product of those same immigrant children who now see ways to use like modern business tactics to help their mom and pop shop. And while these shops are super important to the economy, right, we know that, but also very important to the community, right? You know, like people say, like, let's go down to the local donut shop. As with any business, it has to evolve with the times. And unfortunately, not all mom and pop shops can afford like an expensive marketing agency or something. So who do they go to? Their kids. And Maylee is a good example of this. We see her find ways to attract new customers to DKs, kind of rebranding it in a way using guerrilla marketing tactics. And also, I think, just pure creativity. And we also see it in the recipes with like the unique donut creations. I, I call it bougie donuts, honestly. <laughs> like the different <laughs> toppings and flavorings and stuff like that. I'm personally like, cool, that's nice. I'm not a fan of it. I, again, I'm just a good old classic glaze kind it's of It's about guy. that throwback, that it's glaze. It's the glaze, that's yeah. how I am. Donuts, you know, is such an American food and essential to the American breakfast. Well, you know, we're in the information age, right? Where we have all of this data at our fingertips. So, you know, what's next from there? Well, it's the experience age, right? It's all about garnering that experience yeah. uh, for doing it for the gram, right? Yeah. And, uh, you know, when you're creating a brand that is around the idea that it's you can take snapshots and kind of live in that experience and create that FOMO, that's actually what is making it so that donuts can continue to stay relevant. You know, there was a study done um, where you know, donuts, for an example, their multi $4 billion uh, industry, and it actually grew uh, year over year from 2016 to 2020 uh, by 1.4%, uh, where you see a lot of other you know, sub-industries actually struggling. Uh, donuts continue to stay competitive and you know, stay in the game, right? And a part of that is, yeah, you're going to see not only you're going to see the uh, toffee clear with a bacon on top, but you're going to see, you know, uh, cereal and cookie crumbles right. and all this other different things on it. Um, it's also like an artwork to it, too. The different designs and like, right, like right. American flag, a baseball, basketball, whatever donut. <laughs> right. Yeah. And um, yeah, there's the, the novelty of that is just to say like, hey, I did it. Right. You you know, like um, the gram. Hey, there you go. <laughs> and you're going to see a lot of people going to these places like, you know, the voodoo donut shop and, you know, and have this kind of throw down of who's the best donuts around which is crazy because really at the end of the day we know that for the most part you know glazed donuts actually outperform you know all the others i'm telling you old reliable (laughs) but it is about curating that experience so you know i think what dk donuts does uh with meili tao uh she does a really great job of going on live shooting beautiful boomerangs of of you know glazed donuts um one of the other things too is that actually people can be able to see it 
and know that, hey, this is a brand new batch. I want that fresh batch right now, right? Yeah. As opposed to making it, you know, once in the evening, once in the morning, like that's it. Mm-hmm. You can see that they're doing multiple new batches, small batches, uh, fresh uh, batches, like throughout the day. So, you know, I think that's one aspect that kind of continues to make it relevant. We mentioned where there's the mom and pop shop that they started up just to survive, just to run a business, to have opportunity while their kids grow up in an American education system, go off to college and get a degree X, Y, and Z, right? If they want to pursue business. Uh, Meili Tao is a classic example where it's a combination of both and kind of bridging that gap where you're taking American education and tactics, what all businesses do, right? Social media is the name of the game. And she's using that to uplift and renovate and make her mom's donut shop relevant now. And obviously, I think for many of those in the older generation probably see that like, well, why are you changing something that's always worked for so many years? And the argument is always like, well, if you want it to make it sustainable, there has to be a, a using today's business environment, but also kind of keeping that rooted foundation. I think that's maybe a moral to the story. Right, right. I think that, well, let me just ask you a more superficial question first. Uh, do you take pictures of your food? No. <laughs> you don't? Well, you're like the only Asian that I know that uh, does not. No. <laughs> I, I'm so concentrated about eating it so fast. <laughs> you're not the yeah. target demographic, Ray. I'm so sorry. But there's, there's, <laughs> there are memes about Asian people taking food, pictures of their food, right? You've got, there's actually this one Tumblr that was made, which was called Asian people taking pictures of Asian people taking pictures of food, Mm -hmm. right? (laughs) It's like this inception because I think it's a a form of status actually to be able to show like, hey, look at this type of food that I'm eating that you're not, right? And and so the again, it goes back to this FOMO idea, you know, and there's an aspect of it that is subversive and insidious in the classist way. Yeah. But then there's also just like they do it for fun, right? And like I don't like overanalyzing everything because I do that. I do. Um, and I have to like <laughs> step back and be like, oh, I'm not going to overanalyze this. I'm just going to go ahead and let people have fun. Um, but yeah, if it you're is, a right. person who takes pictures of your food and posts it online, you, you kind of, you're the target demographic um, who yeah. uh, Maylee is kind of going after. She recognized an opportunity, right? She grew up loving this because it was from her parents. Right. And I don't think most people see or want to take over the family business. I don't think most people do. I think most people say like, okay, that was your thing. It's not my thing. I want to pursue my own dream. Right. And I think it takes like a certain type of person to to want to do that but then also know how to do it with flair right their own Mm -hmm. style of doing it Mm -hmm. and you know they actually show in the documentary about how they got on the craze of the cronut right the croissant donut yeah are you are you a fan i'm not (laughs) i've had it honestly it just tastes like a croissant (laughs) it's just in donut form I don't see the draw of it. I'm sorry. Oh, sorry to all the cronut <laughs> lovers out there. But I was like, oh, let me try it. And I was like, this is just a croissant. It might have just been the cronut that I've had. I've not had DK's cronut. And mm. I know that they speak about how um, Maylee's mom create, just winged her own cronut recipe. So there much so that the originator in the East Coast tried to 
cease and desist them. And she's like, hey, first of all, I didn't steal your recipe. I just came up with it my own. Step back. And I was like, damn. <laughs> exactly. Flex. Yeah, but, <laughs> flex. But I, I, I get the draw from it. You know, one aspect of it, you know, when, when in terms of social media sharing your food and your family's food or even your family's business, you are sharing your life. And if you are sharing your family's business and your family's food to your network, definitely I think there's positivity that kind of comes from it because you, you're basically saying, I want to share a piece of what's important to me to all of my friends and to all my network or whatever. And I think there's that aspect to it to, to kind of bridge that, that generational gap because it's, it's saying to your parents, it's so important to me that I want to share this lovely, you know, this environment that I grew up, what made me me to the rest of the world. Right. And everyone kind of does that. And then you build a community all that, around that and all that stuff. And then there's shared experiences. And then, you know, we are where we are today. Well, you know, I think one thing that Meili does get right for sure is curating that experience for her customers, right? Um, making it accessible. And I know because I basically did the same thing. I curated a you know, an art and media festival that was seven days long during the Hmong New Year last year, you know, rest in peace 2020, because we didn't get to do it this year. But, you know, Sorry. I knew how important, <laughs> I knew how important it was to be able to actually, you know, create an experience. So, you know, I think, I think it's really important to, to renovate and update um, and be able to be contemporary. But also being able to kick back to the classics, right? Yeah. And and so you know that that's one thing that it's really rooted in. Still, you still have your you, you still have just your donuts that that you know the main staple. That's something that we as a community can kind of take away as like the main kind of uh, lesson for all of us is that we have to evolve and grow. Thank you, Renee, on on this episode again. Go out, go eat a donut. I might have to go grab one right now. So, All right. Thanks for listening, everyone. Bye. Hey, Real Asian listeners. The best way that you could support us is by giving us a five-star review on iTunes or simply hitting the follow button on Spotify. And by being able to do that, you can be able to make it so that other people that might be interested in Asian cinema can be able to listen to us. It's as simple as that. 